Continuing with the, uh, uh, the talk entitled This Pure Subject Has No Name and uh, this was given on the 6th of August 2003 at the Leicester Summer School by uh, Ajahn Sumato. When the Buddha taught, he was reflecting on the way it is. It was a question of looking at humanity. And in the Buddhist texts, There are many lists of qualities that we all share as human entities, as in the 22 faculties, the Indriya in the Abhidhamma, for example. But these aren't just abstract ideas. They point to the reality of our emotions, our physical bodies, sensory experiences. Yet these kinds of things are often ignored by us in favor of concentration. The eye of concentration, meditative absorption, jhanas, the higher states, nibbana, and all the rest is suppressed, ignored, or just not noticed. Now, because Westerners are usually well-educated, they often understand the theory quite easily. This is just how I see it anyway. This is what I'm reflecting on these days. But they don't have any confidence in direct insight. They might have direct insight, but still their ego structure is based on doubting themselves. So they either exaggerate direct insight by saying, I'm enlightened and think that that is a kind of permanent state of the ego, an enlightened ego, or they think, oh, it was just one of those strange things that happened. Or if the ego suddenly drops away because they're in a very peaceful situation and they experience emptiness, they think it's the result of those conditions, those circumstances. It is the way the ego structure works. My ego always makes me doubt. I have a skeptical kind of inner voice that's very critical. There came a time, however, when I began to see that I needed to get some perspective on it. Because just developing an anti-ego attitude, trying to suppress the ego, wasn't helping. I eventually realized that, what was <coughs> that that was just the ego again, and that I was just developing a new ego perception, and trying to impose that onto experience. But structures like the ten fetters, the sangyojanas, the obstacles to enlightenment, can be very useful in one's reflections. The first three are thinking, which creates doubt, the personality belief, and the conventional structures that we attach to. Once we see through these three fetters, that is stream entry, sotapanna, which means we see the path clearly. We see the way to practice. So what blinds us to the path are these three fetters, the thinking process, the ego, and attachment to conventions or identification with conventional form. So with respect to this, um, and particularly uh, uh, Lumpur Sumedho's comments about the ego, often when uh, we read Buddhist teachings or we hear Dhamma talks and such like, then there's the, the, the often a way that the ego becomes like, like the villain, is a sort of the, the, uh, 
the the bad guy of the of the piece and and the um, the creative creator of uh, all the troubles, and so it can come across that, uh, and especially if the the mind grasps the teachings about anatta in such a way that oh the ego that's the cause of all the problems. If we didn't have an ego, then everything will be great. And if I can, what I, what can I do with a meditation to get rid of my ego, or, or uh, taking the idea of not having a a, a self, or, uh, say I believe in no self. And taking that as an idea and trying to go around and saying, I'm not anybody, you know, hello, who are you? I, I'm not anyone, you know, I'm nobody. <clears throat> you know, I'm nobody, who are you? And that this is uh, the way that the mind grasps at the idea of not self, but it's very much a, I'm nobody. <laughs> there was a, um, uh, not at the Leicester Summer School, but I remember um, going to uh, the, uh, the the Buddhist Society Summer School years and years ago in the early 80s with uh, Lumpur Sumato when uh, it was held at uh, High Lee in Hoddesdon. And there was this one particular gentleman there who was very keen on the idea of anatta. This was this sort of, um, he thought was the most wonderful and powerful teaching. So he always talked about himself as it. Like, uh, uh, it would like a cup of tea or uh, it's time for it to go for a walk. And so um, Lumpur Sumato and I deduced that his wife was at least a bodhisattva, if not an arahant. <laughs> she had incredible patience. And so the, it, because it was this weird, I'm not trying to be too insulting, but it was this weird juxtaposition of this, the idea of being dedicated to the, uh, this wonderful liberating principle of anatta, but then grasping it like, you know, I'm nobody, you know. Yeah, you know, I'm. I'm. You know, this is just it. You know, there is only this it. I, I'm not. You know, this is not a person. But the the mind grasping the <laughs> the itness and making a, a self out of not being a self, or not having the idea of not having a self, and uh, and so that uh, the the quality of of uh, ego or atta is um, is something really to be understood. It's an uh, appealing idea or an appealing principle it can resonate with us say yeah that's right that's true but then the way the mind grasps at it can create more more trouble and can be as uh, in that particular instance even even more of a self even though it's a self that's a not self or when uh, people insist on in the english you know when you write the word i as a, a single word you use a capital i as the convention and then Certain people refuse to use a capital I because you know I you know I believe in not self, so I just use a lowercase I to talk about me, who doesn't really exist. You know, and so that then when somebody writes to you like that and they they only ever use a lowercase I for I, it jumps off the page. I'm nobody. You know, that there's <laughs> I'm so I'm I'm so into not self that I use a lowercase I, w- I wouldn't use an uppercase I to refer to this. You know. So that it jumps off the page, like I, I am such a one who doesn't use an uppercase I. I don't use that convention. Um, maybe I'm not trying to be insulting. Maybe some of you are dedicated lowercase I users. <laughs> um, but uh, the important thing is to look at the attitude behind these. Why, you know, if one does that, why does one make a point of only ever using uh, a lowercase? You know, what makes you so special? You know, why, why do you have to be that way? So that the uh, one of the things about uh, the teachings of, of Anatta is, uh, and this is there's a very wonderful uh, essay, um, uh, article written by Ajahn Tanisaro many years ago, uh, called No Self or Not Self. 
And uh, what he he points out very very uh, helpfully and clearly in that in that in that essay is that there's no place in the Pali Canon where the Buddha says there is no self. You can't find a single instance where that where you, where the Buddha says that. There's lots of times when he says you know the body is not self, feelings are not self, perceptions are not self, but he never makes that sort of declaration there is no self. And when Vachagota, the one of the, the Buddha's indefatigable inquirers, kind of regular and patient and persistent uh, uh, asker of questions to the Buddha, when Vachagota comes to the Buddha and says, does the self exist? Then the, uh, the Buddha remains silent. He doesn't, he doesn't answer. And then Vachagota says, well, so the, does the self not exist? And again, the Buddha remains silent. And Vachagota doesn't know what to make of it, so he, he pays his respects and, and leaves. And so then Venerable Ananda, who's always, as we know, trying to make everything all right and make everything comfortable and good and everybody happy, you know, is a, he's a sort of uh, the Buddha's personal assistant, a PA to the Buddha, and always um, trying to make everything flow smoothly. So then he asked the, 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 the Buddha afterwards, uh, oh, Venerable Sir, why, why was it you didn't give Vachagota an answer? Because, you know, um, you know, it surely it would have been helpful to explain things. And, and the, the Buddha said, well, when he asked me the question, you know, does the self exist, if I said yes uh, to, to that, then that would go against the, the, uh, the many teachings I've given about you know, uh, how all dhammas are not self. Um, and if, uh, he said, if, if when he asked the question, does the self exist, I said no, then he would. Then he'd have the impression. Well, I had a self when I came here, and now the master tells me that I haven't got one. And so then he would have gone away even more confused than when he came. So that's why he didn't answer. So that silence of the Buddha is one of the most, um, uh, say, effective non-teachings. <laughs> if you like, it's a it's a, a teaching of of no words that the that the Buddha gave, so that you can, uh, um, uh, and that's. The uh, uh, one of the few times that the the, the, uh, the Buddha explains that, but it, the uh, the habit of many Westerners, or, and also people in Asia, is to say the Buddha taught there is no self, or the Buddha said there is no self, or there's no ego, there's no soul, and but uh, he's uh, he's not doing that. What he's saying is that the normal things that are taken to be me and mine, the body, our thoughts, our personality, our memories, our uh, uh, our life story, you know, these are not self. Rupang anatta, the body is not self. Vedana anatta, sensations, feelings are not self. Sanya anatta, perceptions are not self. Sankara anatta, mental formations, thoughts, feelings, emotions, moods, ideas are not self. Memories, uh, states of mind are not self. And, and vinyanang anatta, the even discriminative consciousness, the the, um, the the discriminating faculty of mind, the basic. Uh, I say, quality of cognition is is not a person. It doesn't belong to anyone. It isn't a, it isn't a self. It doesn't belong to a self. And so that uh, what he's doing is pointing out that the normal th- the the things that we regularly identify with as being who and what we are that's not what we are. But he he never makes the point of saying, but the real you, <laughs> the real self, is X, Y, or Z. He, ne- he never says that because. Uh, what is you can say what is is real is that quality uh, of awareness, but he never says he never calls that a real self or a true identity. But rather, it's by a pro, what they call a process of elimination. If you let if you stop identifying with what you're not, then what remains is what you are. 
that you don't have to put a word on that or a name on that or or a a structure. And as I I quoted many many times, again in a dialogue with Vachagota, and there's there's room for a, a book about Vachagota and the Buddha it's on my list of possible future projects. Um, the uh, uh, when uh, Vachagota has been asking the Buddha about what happens to an enlightened being when the, the body passes away, um, and uh, you, know, you can't. And the Buddha says the, the, you're asking the question in a in a in a wrong way. So like asking where an enlightened being goes or doesn't go, it's like when a fire goes out, it's asking did the fire go north, south, east, or west. So the way you ask the question presumes a reality that doesn't exist. The fire didn't go in a direction. Like to say an enlightened being goes, then you're assuming identity, that they were that independent uh, born being. You're uh, assuming time that from this moment to another moment. You're assuming location from this place to another place. So that um, the, the Buddha said, you know, the way you ask the question presumes a reality that doesn't exist. You, know, you, uh, you can't... Uh, uh, you, uh, you can't answer that question. You can't answer the question, where does a fire go when it goes out? It doesn't go anywhere. The question doesn't apply uh, in that way. And then uh, after that, uh, that analogy of the fire, then the Buddha says um, that material form, that body or the material form, those feelings, those perceptions, those mental formations, that consciousness whereby one who is trying to describe the Buddha or the awake mind, essentially, uh, would describe him that has been cut off at the root, made like a palm tree stump, deprived of the conditions for existence, and rendered incapable of arising in the future. The Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. So when he says the Tathagata, he's talking about his own subjective experience, but you can translate that into the, the quality of awareness of your own mind. That it's also referring to that buddho, the awake aware quality that Lumpur Samedo talks about in every Dhamma talk in this book. So it's saying that that awake, aware mind that, um, that is uh, the, the, the medium of all experience, the, the mode of all experience, the Tathagata is liberated from being reckoned in terms of form, feeling, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. That, uh, he is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. So that quality of knowing, that quality of awakened awareness, is profound, immeasurable, unfathomable, like the great ocean. It's, there's an isness, there's, there's a quality that is present, but you can't define it in terms of uh, our ordinary language or our ordinary words and concepts. That it's like trying to describe 10-dimensional uh, space or 23-dimensional space in terms of, of a, a drawing or words. It's like, you can use the words like 10-dimensional space, but the mind can't create a mental image of that, or 23-dimensional space. Or, or as I, I also mentioned before, I came across one particular theory which um, speaks of reality, um, our experiential reality of the material and, and mental world as formed of 196,884 dimensions. 196,884 dimensions. Try imagining that. So uh, the, the, the Buddha basically realized you can't describe it. You can't describe what this, this reality is. 
but you can you can be that that can be directly realized even though words and concepts can't reach in there so that uh, the um, uh, <coughs> when we talk about not self then it's in a sense recognizing that we have an ego we have a personality because it's a useful psychological structure in terms of us uh, our world as human beings it helps us to get by with each other to work in a family to work in a human group to work in a monastery or an office or a hospital or a school or you know, on the street you know you you can function together with with the human group as Ajahn Chah said if if uh, if we didn't have names when we wanted to talk to someone we'd just be able to say person person you know who who would be the right one to answer because we're all person so we have names we have conventional designations so we can get by in the world in very very practical forms and someone's the child someone's the parent someone's the teacher someone's a student someone's the person with the green light someone's the person with the red light <laughs> so it's a, a a psychological structure that's used to help order our life in the world and so it has its purposes like like a chair you know you put it together you can sit on it it has its uh, has a use but there isn't fundamentally anything there it's not solid so that uh, the ego is uh, a a useful structure it becomes a problem when it's taken to be an absolute reality me i am i want i think my opinion i should i shouldn't i got to i've got to i can't the mind makes those I's and me's and minds into a, 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 a kind of pseudo-absolute quality. Me, I think, what I want, my feelings. And uh, the the more solid and absolute the mind makes those I feelings, then the more that we act in ways that are destructive and harmful. Like this, this terrible uh, shooting that just took place in, in New Zealand. This uh, guy went into into uh, two different mosques uh, and was uh, murdering 49 different people injuring many many others because essentially believing my version of reality is more important than yours i think you should die because you're a bad person and then having a weapon and that following that thought then they wade into that situation and create this incredible trauma and destruction and and waves of of pain and misery for, for many many people so that there, I would say that that's where e- egotism and the self-view is taken to a, a kind of ultimate extreme. So being a sociopath or psychopath like that, where you, my reality is is the only important or the most important thing, and and um, so that the, the Buddha's teaching is helping us to go in the opposite direction to recognize that we're not trying to pretend that we don't have an ego or that we don't exist, but rather seeing that that sense of me and mine, the, the qualities of a personality, they are convenient fictions. It's a name. Like Rather than being person, 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 and person, we have uh, Pei uh, Ching, we have Maricela, there's, uh, there's Paul, there's Tan uh, Deepako, you know. Okay, that's the person we're talking about. That's the person who's on the list for the washing up, okay? <laughs> so that uh, we recognize that it's, it's a useful fiction. But it's just a fiction, like a chair. You put it together and you can sit on it. It's a it's a useful thing. It, there's no there's no absolute chair here. You take the pieces apart and put them on a fire, and then it turns into heat and ash and smoke. It's yeah. but at the moment it's a useful thing to hold the body up in a certain uh, position. So that 
the the first of the fetters, the samyojana, self view, is not trying to believe that we don't have, that we don't exist or that there's no reality. It's seeing that that I and me and mine can only be a, a convenient fiction. Our, our story, the, the the feeling of me as this person who has a particular appearance or where I was born or the, what I experienced, that the narrative self is is a is just a story. You know, it's got some some uh, patterns to it, but it, it's just a one version of a of a story. The feeling of being an owner. This is mine. Recognizing that owning anything can only be a, uh, a, a a kind of human agreement. Like I can say, you know, this is my bookmark. Eleonora made this beautiful bookmark. She has a particular skill in chopping, uh, in carving out paper and sticking it together. And so this is all handcrafted by Eleonora, and she gave it to me. So it's mine. <laughs> it's mine. But it's only mine as long as I don't lose it, or it doesn't get sort of. I give a book away, and then the the the, the bookmark goes with it, or a, or it uh, gets crumpled up, and then becomes a, a, a fire lighter. You know, it, but at the moment, yeah, you know, but I can say this is mine. This belongs to me. And no, you can't have it. It's mine. <laughs> and if you ta- if someone takes it away, then that's bad and wrong, and they shouldn't do that. So that that any kind of owning, similarly for our body, you know, and. Uh, that feeling of owning can only be a convenient fiction. It's a convention that we put together. So that the uh, stream entry then is based on the that the, the first obstacle to stream entry, to that irreversible insight into reality, is seeing a, p- a personality view is just a view. The, uh, and uh, the way that Lumpur often summarizes that, it's the belief, I am the body, I am the personality. This is me. This is this is absolutely what I am. That's the the sakayaditi or the and in Pali it's kind of quite quite neatly spelled out. Sat means true or real. Kaya is a body. Diti is view. So the view of the real body or the uh, I am. This is what I am. I am a man. Or I'm a woman. I'm sixty two years old. Or, this is what I am. So that seeing through that first fetter, or that first fetter, a fetter is like a, like a chain or handcuffs or a kind of something that's tying you down. So the first of those fetters is recognizing, oh, that can only be a, a half-truth or a convenient fiction. It can't be an absolute truth. It's just a, a way of speaking. Then the second is uh, doubt about what is the path and what is not the path. So uh, the... Um, that that recognition of oh when the mind sees that all conditions uh, thoughts feelings perceptions mental formations consciousness they are all essentially empty there isn't any real substance there these are uh, and the the more that the mind recognizes these are empty changing and ownerless then the more the heart is in tune with with its own reality and the the reality of the dhamma so recognizing that that's the path and that uh, the more that that is developed, then the the more fully that realization will will be um, actualized. And then the the third of the three factors, as Lumpur mentions here, is that of uh, attachment to conventions. So, in an ordinary English way of speaking, that's a, a bit of a strange expression. Well, like self view is a bit of a strange expression. But this means uh, the Pali is sila pata paramasa, which literally means 
the wrong, the incorrect handling of virtue or, or ethics or, or forms. So it's uh, uh, often when it's described in the scriptures, it will be like believing that if you bathe in the river Ganges, that all your bad karma will be washed away, or that. Um, Say in in the Christian circumstance, you know, if you've been baptized by a priest in the church, then you are one of the um, the the, uh, the kind of uh, the blessed, or that you uh, you have been accepted into the church. You belong to the church uh, because you've had this water put on your head, and uh, or so and so forth. So that the the taking of a religious ritual and making it something absolutely uh, true or real or right or so that there's a certain way that you bow that's right and ways that you bow that is wrong <laughs> that kind of thing so that uh, Lumpur Cha would extend that far beyond the realm of um, say religious conventions and say um, the social conventions like which side of the road is the right side of the road to drive on so that's Sila Pata Paramasa uh, or that uh, the value of money, say, and this is Sila Pata Paramasa, you know, a piece of paper has certain ink marks on it and says, this is worth 10 baht, this is worth 100 baht, this is worth 1,000 baht. It's just a piece of paper with ink on it. That's, it's, it's just a convention. And get, saying it has value is what the mind adds to it. So that that, uh, uh, <clears throat> that sense of, of what is a custom or a form or a convention recognizing it's just a human agreement there's no thing absolutely there similarly that um, if that's recognized then that is the 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 culmination of the realization of, of stream entry that uh, that yeah within this convention then when we meet each other we put our hands together we make anjali other places that people shake hands so before Lumpur came to the West, he had the Western monks teaching him how to shake hands because he, he'd never done that. He didn't know. He said, teach me this handshaking thing. I need to, you know, people are going to do that. So I should, I should know what to do. So which, which hand is it, you know? And so they actually had to teach him because he wanted to learn. And uh, so that, uh, uh, that the, those kind of things would be in the realm of Sila Pata Paramasa, of, uh, of that sense of, not just being a convention, but that's the right way of doing it. That's the wrong way of doing it. You should do it this way. That's, this is good manners. That's bad manners. You know, when you use a knife and fork, you have the, you know, the knife in the right hand and the fork in the left hand. And the, the tines of the fork should point downwards. If, the, if you're in England, in Amer- as only Americans, they turn the fork upside down. And they'll lift their peas up with the fork the wrong way up. In England, you have to put the peas on the back of the fork. It's gross bad manners to turn the fork the, the wrong way out so the tines are kind of the, making a, a kind of bowl shape. That's absolutely forbidden. Only Americans do that. Kind of thing. <laughs> That's literally the kind of thing my parents would say. And you never hold your, your knife like that. <laughs> and when you spread butter, you spread the butter with the blade uh, with the blade away from you, you know, the, the, the sharp edge of the knife is always away from you. you, spread towards you with the back of the blade, moving the butter across the bread <laughs> in your direction. To do it the other way is really gross. It's kind of, yeah, yeah. I had a lot of table manners training as a kid. That was the Sila Bata Baramasa of my family. Don't put your elbows on the table. Those kind of things. So that... Uh, 
when the mind can recognize, oh, isn't it interesting? In this country, you're supposed to put your elbows on the table. This country, you don't put your elbows on the table. This country, you hold the fork this way. This country, you hold the fork that way. We have a fork in the right hand and a spoon in the left hand. <laughs> well, you eat with your hands. You know? um, <clears throat> so like if you go to Ajahn Mahabur's monastery, spoons are completely forbidden. You can only eat with your hand. Ice cream, you're allowed to use a spoonful. <laughs> But the, uh, if, if you're a visiting monk going to, to Ajahn Mahabur's monastery, what Bantat, you sit down at the mealtime, you take a spoon out, <laughs> sharp intake of breath all around you, push it away, push it away. That's how it used to be, anyhow. So. Whereas at Wat Pong, it's quite ordinary to use spoons. So recognizing, oh, this is a convention. There's no thing really there. It's just a human agreement. And to be able to see that that's intrinsically the case is, is uh, what brings the mind fully to stream entry. That, uh, so self-view, doubt, and uh, letting go of conventions. Those are the three fetters that need to be broken through to, for stream entry to be realized. Now, in insight meditation, we use impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and non-self as a way of not giving importance to the quality of experience. A lot of people who practice it, however, just seem to take the words and project them onto experience. They take the words, everything is impermanent, and then bind themselves to the idea of that rather than trusting themselves to be fully aware of impermanence as it happens. Not self ends up with them feeling guilty about any kind of need or desire they experience because for most people, everything is highly connected with that sense of self. The hunger of the body can be thought of as some kind of personal greed, and the sexual energies can also be taken very personally, as with fear and all these kinds of primal instinctual emotions. In modern life, these things are generally interpreted in a highly personal way. Yesterday I was talking about the sense of being identified as an individual, of everything being uniquely mine as a personality and an individual creature. In Thailand, the culture is not so individualistic. It has more of a social cohesion to it. Identities in Thailand are on a wider range, so their common humanity is accepted more. They don't seem to feel guilty about being hungry or having sexual desires and so on. For them, it's just part of being human. Everybody's like that. On the other hand, when one has developed a high sense of individuality, I've noticed It all becomes very personal. One feels, I'm the only one that suffers from all this. It's just my problem. There's something wrong with me. Everybody else seems okay. I'm the odd one out. I'm a freak. There's something in me that's wrong. I don't think that that would be the cause of so much with, that would be the the case so much with Thai people. Lumpur Chao was very good at laughing at human frailty, not in a derogatory way, not in a snobbish or patronizing way of we monks are above that, but in a kind of empathetic way of saying, we humans are like this. We all have these energies and emotions and instincts. Being human is like this. He pointed at these very obvious things that we all experience. I began to see that the important thing, actually, was to stop thinking. <laughs> but that I found, that I found was a real challenge for me. My whole world was created through thinking. I thought all the time. It seemed as though I couldn't stop thinking, in fact. 
I wanted to figure everything out. I wanted to know about everything. Have it all nicely analysed. And all the questions answered and all the problems solved. And I felt very ill at ease with vagueness or any sense of uncertainty or doubt. The scriptures refer to the greed type, the hatred type, the doubting type and the ignorant type. I could see that, well, I'm certainly greedy enough and I certainly have enough hatred and anger, but doubt is an obsession of my mind. I'm a sceptic and there is nothing I can do about it. I tried to believe in Christianity by willing myself to do it, but I couldn't. In Zen, they use the koan method as a way of non-plussing the thinking mind so that it stops in mid-air, so to speak. Non-plussing means bringing it to a sense of, huh? or having no, no way forward or, or not uh, having any kind of obvious answer. They use the koan as a method of non-plussing the thinking mind so that it stops in mid-air, so to speak. I started reading books on developing doubt began to have moments when I actually recognized non-thinking as a reality. They were like gaps between the thoughts. Now, the nature of thought is such that one thought always connects to another. Thinking about thinking means you're still thinking. And thinking about not thinking is still thinking. It's a catch-22. So you can't win on that level. All the planning you do to stop thinking, and knowing that you should stop thinking, is still thinking. So, it's a question of recognizing rather than thinking. Of getting to the point where your mind goes towards stillness. Making that really conscious mo- that a really conscious moment so that it isn't just a flash that goes unnoticed. I had these Charles Luke books on the Hua To when asking questions like, Who am I? And I started developing that. I then began to recognize where the thinking mind stops. When you ask yourself a question, there's a gap before the mind starts trying to answer it. The point is to consciously notice these gaps between the thoughts before they connect, before the thought process starts again. So this was when uh, Lumpo Sumato was in the Peace Corps in uh, Borneo in the early 60s. And uh, he had a friend who lived in, in Hong Kong, I think another Peace Corps uh, volunteer, and uh, in those days, uh, there was a, a Chinese uh, Buddhist author called Charles Luke, and uh, he did this uh, uh, series of books called Chan and Zen Training. I think they were published by Ryder, uh, Ryder Books. And so uh, by that time, uh, Ajahn Sumedhi, he was a layman at that time, so living in, uh, in Borneo and working in a Chinese school. He, could, he, he knew Chinese language, so he taught in a Chinese school in Borneo. And uh, Charles uh, and this friend in, in Hong Kong would send him these Charles Luke uh, Dhamma books, and so that the, in one of those there was a series of talks from a retreat that was led by the great Master Shu Yun in, uh, uh, in I believe in Shanghai uh, in the 1950s. And so there were these uh, these uh, talks that Charles Luke had translated into English, and in that there was quite a clear um, definition of how to carry out this this practice of investigating the the Hua To. Uh, and it's uh, particularly around the use of this question, who am I? And so just as Lombard describes here, then he uh, uh, you would say, bring the mind to as much clarity as possible, stillness, and then deliberately bring the question into the, the space of the mind, who am I? And then the, you ask the question not to get some kind of conceptual answer, but the point is to, as he said, non-plus the mind, to kind of 
to bring that mind to the moment of oh, who am I? That, and he noticed that when that that kind of question was was observed clearly, there was a space or a gap after the question was asked and before any kind of conceptual answers uh, arose, so that the uh, the the question is like the kind of the head, and then the space after it is like the tail. So the the point of the of asking the question is not to come up with a clever conceptual answer or your name, but rather that gap, uh, that the tail that comes after the question, that that space, that's the point. And then to bring the attention to uh, be aware of that space, that gap, where in that moment, if you carry out this kind of practice, then the, the mind is awake, there's no, there's no thinking going on, and there's also no sense of self, that question of who am I, uh, it it punctures the usual self-creating process, and so that uh, when in one of the very early winter retreats that we had back in uh, Chidhurst in about 1981, I think it was, and the winter retreat was only two weeks long at that point, so <laughs> we've expanded uh, over the years. Uh, then uh, Lumpur Sumedho taught this this method to the whole group, and also he was teaching the meditation on the inner sound, on the nada sound. So first of all, he get us listening to the, the, the inner sound, the, the nada, and then uh, in that, uh, that kind of listening space, attentive space, then to drop the question, who am I? And then to focus on the, the gap that comes after the question before the, the, the thinking begins. And uh, that was a, I found that a very, very effective kind of meditation. And also, he would make the point, it's not just, again, like, like with... Anicca dukkha anatta, it's not just a matter of anicca, 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 repeating the word like a mantra. It's not a matter of repeating, who am I, who am I, who am I, who am I? It's a kind of, just a repetition of mental noise. But rather, there needs to be a, a conscious posing of the question. There's a real asking. Yeah, who, who am I? Who, who am I? And uh, if there's a genuine asking, a genuine questioning, that's what brings about that, that pause or that, that gap. And that uh, the the point of the question is that, in a sense, the uh, when it's when it's asked, then just like with the Buddha saying to Vajragotha, it's the wrong question. <laughs> yeah. Then the uh, when the, the 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 mind sees that it recognizes, oh, who is who's not the right question? This isn't a who; it's more of a a what, because the the word who implies there's a person here, and again, not coming from a a theoretical position, but just that that felt sense of well, yeah, this this quality of of knowing it's not really a person; it's more like a it's a it's a quality. It's a it's a, a an as, an attribute of 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 mind. It's not really a who. It's more of a what. So you can develop. You can let, change the question, develop it, um, let it evolve, and to and to to use that as an active. And uh, in a creative way, because the point is not the words of the question, the point is the space that comes after. <laughs> so that, um, that, uh, uh, so when uh, Lumpur Sumato was, um, he was two years in the Peace Corps in Borneo, and then after that time, he went to Thailand. He got a job teaching English at um, Tamasat University for a, a time, and then his interest in Buddhism was, was, was increasing. He went to what Mahathat in Bangkok and, and learnt more meditation there and decided he wanted to become a monk. So he went up to the northeast and became a, 
a novice in a, a, a meditation monastery near in Nongkai. And then after a year there, living pretty much in seclusion, solitary uh, uh, time in this little kuti, little hut in this meditation monastery, through all that time he was using this, uh, this huato meditation, this investigation of, uh, of the question, who am I? And that was uh, his practice over about two, uh, two or three years. That's what he used, and particularly intensively in the Kuti in, in Nongkai. So when he went to, to meet Lumpur Cha after he'd, he'd taken uh, higher ordination, Upasampada as a monk, and then wanted to find a, a, a teacher who he could train in Vinaya with, and uh, he went to see Ajahn Chah, and Ajahn Chah asked him what kind of meditation he did, and he thought, oh, he's going to tell me to stop doing this method and to do the Ajahn Chah method, but he didn't know what that might be, but he uh, thought, because usually in Thailand at that time, each monastery had its own style, and okay, this is the Longpo uh, Tun method, or this is the uh, Somdet Do method, or this is the the Ajahn the, the, uh, 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 Fan method. And so he thought, oh, he's going to tell me to have to give this up. And uh, so he described it um, through a translator. And uh, Ajahn Chah said, so what are the results like? And he said, oh, very good. Uh, it's a very, very helpful, very effective. And then to his amazement, Ajahn, uh, Ajahn Chah just said, okay, carry on doing that. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so uh, then later on, uh, when he'd settled in and was been living at Wobbapong and could speak some Thai, then he asked uh, Lumpur Cha, you know, when, I, when uh, you asked me that, I was worried that you were going to say I had to stop doing that. And he said, had you ever heard of that kind of meditation before? And he said, no. <laughs> it's completely new to me. He said, really? He said, and they said, well, you, and he said, so, but you were quite happy for me to carry on doing it? He said, yeah, well, you said the results were good, so... Yeah, I was happy for you to carry on doing that, but also 95% of what you learn at Wat Pong is not from the meditation, it's from living with other people and dealing with your body and your mind. So, uh, any thoughts, questions, reflections? Yes. Um, about the uh, non-self, in the morning when we chant Sabay, the mouth, and the uh, I think it's, there's no self in the creative world in the creative world. The way I'm saying everything is not self. So, yeah, it's uh, a. Um, that, tra- that translation was chosen before um, uh, that distinction between no self and not self was particularly clear. So, when we did the new edition of the chanting book, there was a suggestion to change it. There was a lot of discussion amongst the editorial committee, of which I was a member. And I actually came up with that original translation. So I wanted to change it because I felt that's not really right. But even though I was the one who actually put that into English, saying there is no self in the created and the uncreated, that was me <laughs> who, who wrote that originally. And I wanted, I, I wrote it. I wanted to change it. Then the other people on the committee wouldn't agree. Said, nah, everyone's used to that now. It's, it's good enough. It's close enough. Then. So I got vetoed. But yeah, it's a way, I would say, that's a very good question. It's a way of saying, um, you know, all dhammas are not self. There is a, the, the, uh, the whether it's the uh, conditioned or the unconditioned, that there isn't, they don't belong, they don't belong to a self. They are, they are not in and of themselves. They are not a self and they don't belong to a self. Empty yourself and what belongs to a self. It doesn't mean, 
It doesn't mean, it's not like a philosophical position that there is no self. But if what, because, but I feel it's important to, to, to appreciate the Buddha's method by saying you know, the Sabe Sankara and Icha Sabe Dhamma Anatta, all conditioned things are impermanent, all, uh, all Dhammas, all, all phenomena, you know, conditioned and unconditioned, uh, are not self. He's saying that uh, the rather than creating an idea, because the mind goes to words and ideas, and then grasps the idea, what he's doing is, is as I said before, encouraging you to to the mind to stop identifying with what it's not, and then what remains is what is real. The thinking mind can can then say, "Ah, I am pure awareness. That's what I am." <laughs> I am the awake mind, that's the real me. But that's just a thought, saying, that's the real me. Or, I am the Dhamma, that's what I am. Being Dhamma, that's what Lumpur Chah said. So, I am the Dhamma, that's what I am. But, that, but then in that moment, the mind has grasped the idea, I am the Dhamma. And it's, and it's lost that perspective of genuinely being Dhamma. <laughs> being that awareness, it's grasped the idea of it. So that the, the method of the Buddha is to continually... Uh, guide the, the, the students towards a quality of realization rather than just having a, an idea about it. So it's very, um, very rare for the Buddha to try and put um, sort of, uh, say, metaphysical qualities into words. And most of his attention goes on to uh, the, the, the means of realization for that. But um, <coughs> so that Ninety-nine percent of the teaching is about the path, rather than trying to describe the ultimate reality. And so, that was again in in his own time, and even up to today, it's quite unusual, where many spiritual teachings would be sort of praising ultimate reality or trying to describe it, or the Brahman or the you know the the Paramatta Satya, the kind of ultimate truth, and coming up with descriptions or just praising and uh, uh, making very Sort of grand, powerful statements, but the the Buddha had this insight right from the very, very beginning. It's like, well, no words can go there, so don't bother. And so, just teaching the mind how to arrive, at what's necessary to arrive at that direct realization, and to make that that quality um, of uh, of awakening the, the the kind of that that's the the aim of the practice. And the teaching, the verbal teachings, is not to come up with a, a description of of what's ultimately real. It's kind of, it's interesting that we, in the scriptures, many many people ask the Buddha those questions, like the Vachagota asked, like what uh, what is the 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 what happens to an enlightened being at the end of their life, or um, is the 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 body one thing and the and the self another? Um, are they are they separate? Are they unified? You know, that the Buddha wouldn't answer any of those. But no one who's a stream-enterer ever asks the Buddha those questions. Those questions are always asked by people who are, who are worldlings. There's, you never get a, there's not one single instance in the whole of the Pali Canon where someone who's a stream-enterer or, or a once-returner or a non-returner or an arahant ever asks the Buddha what happens to an arahant when they pass away. <laughs> they don't ask the question because they know the that. The, that way of speaking is is like it, it represents a reality that doesn't exist. Yes. 
constantly in reality, but Samadhi Sabad Dhamma Anatta is clearer than there is no self, that, that, that there is, is not in you, that is falling, directly mm. implies no longer anymore, but in you, falling in Wonderland. Then. So the scene after, if she met somebody on the road, then she said, oh, I saw nobody. And then the scene after said, well, what, that, where is nobody? Then? You saw him, he's <laughs> not arrived, and you know, why, why is he not here? So making nothing into a thing, mm -hmm. I wonder whether Pali would be perhaps better language for expressing these things. <laughs> well, that's, that's one of the reasons why it's good to learn some of the Pali, because our own cultural conditioning comes through, yeah, and that you can get a, a, different, a different feeling, a, a sense of a different intuition that comes with the words when you get a familiarity with the original, uh, original teachings. Um, it's all. It's it's interesting how uh, what you find, particularly in the northern Buddhist world, is that shunyata, emptiness, has become a kind of a thing, you know, a thing which is no thing, and that uh, in the Pali, the word sunyata is much less common than the adjective sunya, meaning empty. You, em, sunyata means emptiness, and that ness on the end it turns into a kind of a, a thing. <laughs> So that you you can find the mind grasping emptiness or making uh, that emptiness into a, a kind of um, giving it a substantiality, and that uh, in the Pali it's almost it's much more common that it's just the Buddha is empty of self and what belongs to a self. The, the, it's just an ordinary adjective, sunya. It's a, that there is uh, it's a much more of, down, of a down to earth way of, of speaking about it rather than emptiness of something that the mind can grasp you. Okay. So just to continue a little bit. I found that developing that was very helpful and I had some success in recognizing how thinking arises and ceases in consciousness. Previously I had regarded consciousness and thinking as the same thing. It seemed that they were bound together so tightly that there was no differentiation. But in this recognition of the gaps between thoughts, I realized I was conscious, yet there was no thought. From here, I began to notice the cosmic sound, the background sound, and to recognize more and more a very natural state of being. Then I had perspective on my ego, was able to see how I, how I created myself with thoughts, how I identified with the body and emotional habits as myself. Over the years, I've been developing this way of just seeing what the ego is. When I become Ajahn Sumato and operate from the ego, I'm empowering something which is really not alive. It's just perceptions and habits that I have acquired. That's why I think as you get older, the ego becomes boring. You get fed up with yourself. You've lived with the ego for so long, and it just says the same things all the time. Even when you're young, it can happen. This says the same things all the time. I see how easily I am upset on the ego level, how I can get really angry if somebody insults me, threatens me, or criticizes something that is very sacred to me, something that I have invested a lot of interest in. I can feel outraged and upset by all kinds of things. People might say, 
You don't have to be a monk, you know. That's the old-fashioned way. I could react to that. Combination of thinking and emotion can develop around the sense of oneself. And in monastic life, where you're living with others all the time, you find very childish emotions coming up, even when you're the head of a community. Indeed so. (laughs) There is, however, this perspective on emptiness, which does not depend on closing your eyes and shutting out the world. It's a natural state that we all have right now, but maybe haven't recognized and don't know. Once that recognition comes about, however, then that to me is the path. And the rest is, like they say, the karma ripening. So as he mentions here, that was uh, the combination of listening to the, the inner sound, uh, the, um, what they call the, uh, conti- uh, like a steady, continual background uh, sound that is there in, the, in our hearing. Like I, I can hear it right now as I'm speaking. But, uh, it's like a white noise in the background of, of our uh, auditory world. And, uh, and developing that perspective on thought. Uh, also an interesting practice that, that Lumpur would teach in those days to get a perspective on thought um, and to, to learn how to observe thought as, uh, and to appreciate thought as a sense object is to train your mind to deliberately think and to know thought so that oftentimes we assume that, say in meditation, if we hear a sound, doesn't have to obstruct our meditation, it's just hearing. You feel sensations in the body, and it's the sensation you can feel the weight of your body on the cushion or the mat or the chair. Yeah, that's, it's there, but it's not ruining the meditation. Or we, we see a visual form. We're doing walking meditation, we see the landscape changing around us, and that can be part of the meditation. But when it comes to thinking, then there's the assumption, if the mind is thinking, then I'm not meditating of them. I've, my, my, my meditation is ruined. I'm just sitting there thinking all the time. But uh, uh, Lumpur Sumedha would often stress that thought is just another... Se- in Buddhist psychology, thinking is just another sense object. Just as we were reciting the, um, the fire sermon this morning, I think. Is that right? Yes, we did. Yeah. So, the eye perceives light. The ear perceives sound. The, the the nose perceives odors, the tongue perceives tastes, the body perceives sensations, and the mind perceives thought. It's just another sense object. and But we are so, uh, say, entranced or bedazzled, we're so sort of taken up with the thinking world, the mind is so dominated by it, that we assume that thought is some kind of ultimately real thing, and that all of our thoughts are true. So... Just as we can see a visual object and not make much of it, you know, it's just a red color or a blue color, or it's just a you know, clock, you know, so what? If we think something, we can take that to be valid, true, and real, and, and important. So Lung Paul used to, to teach us how to, uh, to develop that sense of, of uh, knowing a thought, just as a thought, without feeling you have to push it away, without having to believe in it. And it's a, a, it's a useful method to employ... So you take a, a very bland statement, something that's completely unemotional and not personal. Like, uh, and he would use like the day of the week as a very easy uh, example. So today is Saturday. Most of us wouldn't take that very personally. Uh, and so <clears throat> you let the mind be as quiet as possible and then deliberately think those words. Today is Saturday. They notice the space before the words, then you deliberately think the words, you're aware of the words, today is 
Saturday, and then notice the space after. So because it's not personal, it's not emotionally charged, it's not uh, anything that's frightening or exciting or interesting in any particular way, it's just, it's deliberately bland, as bland as possible. (laughs) So that then you can say, oh look, the mind can be fully aware of a thought. Today is Saturday. There's a thought in the mind, it's clearly stated, but there's no confusion around it. You can see the space before it and after it, the space around it, the space within it. The space of the mind is not obscured by the fact that there's a thought there. Just like you can see a color or a shape or you can hear a sound, and the space of the mind is not intrinsically blocked or taken up or filled because of that sound or that color or that taste. There's a, a, a spaciousness that can be there as well. If it's an exciting form, or a frightening form, or, or a shocking sound, or a painful sound, then it fills the mind. But generally they don't. So that's an exercise that's very useful to carry out, to, de- to develop a, a, a non-attachment to thinking. And the more you do that with simple, bland statements, like today is Saturday, or this is England, or um, yeah, <coughs> we're in Hemel Hempstead... <laughs> Whatever it might be, just you can choose your own bland statement. Then, when the mind comes up with more emotional or more personal, uh, more, as a loaded uh, thoughts, then it's possible to get the same kind of perspective on it. It's just, it's just the, um, here's the thought, she doesn't like me, or that she likes me, or that uh, I've got so many things to do, or uh, that was really stupid what I said, or, uh, oh, that... <coughs> That person's really, uh, really, uh, really worrying me. You know, something has got more, more uh, of a personal feeling or emotional charge. They begin to, to be able to see them in exactly the same way. Like, uh, I don't like him. You know, he doesn't like me. Or she's a good person. Uh, uh, I've got uh, a long list of things to do. That they exactly the same way that a thought can arise, take shape, do its thing, and fade away. And we can see the space before, the space after, the space permeating it. We can see the transparency of, of thought. So we don't have to push it away, don't have to grasp hold of it, don't have to give it any special meaning. Just like we don't have to push away the color of the carpet or the, the sound of a, of a bird or a car passing by. It's just the sound, just the color, just the form. So to develop that kind of skill in relationship to thinking is extremely useful. <laughs> but you find that the mind can be thinking and yet can be completely peaceful at the same time. It can be um, just treated like any other kind of sense object, like the weight of your body on the cushion or the, the, the sound of birds or, the, or like the, the inner sound, just the, the, the nada kind of ringing away. It's just thought, that's all. No, no intrusion, no danger, no obstruction to the, the peace of the mind. So it's, uh, I see it's gone past seven o'clock already, and we have evening puja tonight, so I'll leave it there for today. Mm-hmm.